Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 94, Jeff Bellin, the evidence rules that convict the innocent. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Today, Jeff Bellin returns to the podcast. Jeff is, of course, the Mills E. Godwin Jr. Professor of Law at William & Mary Law School. I've found Jeff's scholarship just to be fantastic. I personally could not recommend it more highly for those interested in evidence and criminal procedure. And we're fortunate enough today to have Jeff on to discuss his new paper, The Evidence Rules That Convict the Innocent, which is forthcoming in the Cornell Law Review. In the paper, Jeff is exploring which rules of evidence contribute most readily to false convictions. His results are surprising. They're counterintuitive. But ultimately, they're deeply insightful. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thanks. I'm excited again to be here. Well, so let me begin with this. First things first, your paper seeks to use exoneration data and data on false convictions to effectively audit evidence law, which I think is a a fascinating idea. So as a first step in thinking about how evidence law might facilitate, or at least at a minimum, would fail to prevent false convictions, you suggest that we have to first examine kind of the assumptions and normative goals that underlie evidence law itself. So how does that preliminary examination help bring clarity to this issue that you're exploring? Yeah, that's a key part of this and something I didn't fully appreciate when I started. And that's that the whole project I'm talking about rests on an assumption that what we're trying to achieve through the evidence rules is to get the correct verdict and correct meaning kind of factually accurate in this context. And so that's one of the assumptions also of the innocence project and these innocence movements, that there is a problem when we have a jury convict someone if they are factually innocent. And so that seems so obvious to everyone that you don't have to usually interrogate that assumption. But for this project where I'm really saying, are the evidence rules working? I have to have some definition of what working means. And that forced me to talk a little about What do we mean for an evidence rule to work? And I think it's intuitive that what we mean is that it helps the fact finder get the right answer and right meaning factually correct answer. But as you suggest, it's not beyond dispute that that's what the evidence rules should do. And so I had to talk about that and defend my assumption that what we want from the evidence rules project is to push fact finders towards the factually accurate result and away from factually inaccurate results, which in this context, I think, is easier to defend when we're talking about convictions, right? I think that it's going to be hard to find people who are saying, I want the jury to convict people who are factually innocent for other reasons. And so, you know, I think it works, but it's important to get everyone on board at the beginning with the idea that evidence rules should foster accuracy. So I think I agree with you here, but I do want to push back ever so slightly because you said you you defended in the article. And, and of course, I think we want to hear the defense. Right. Um, and I think <laughs> that that some, um, for example, Charles Nesson might say that the legitimization of verdicts, what he calls the appearance of justice, 
would be the purpose of the evidence rules. Now, as a part of that, of course, factual accuracy plays into legitimacy and it plays into the social acceptability of a verdict. It's going to be illegitimate if there's just factual inaccuracy run rampant. But it isn't necessarily the exclusive goal. And I think one could pinpoint discrete areas where legitimacy and accuracy might not be working in tandem. So what would you say about that view? Yeah, so first I'll just say it. this is really hard stuff, right? So I'm happy to talk about it. And I talk about it more in the article. And one thing I do worry about sometimes is that people will listen to the podcast and then feel like they shouldn't read the article. And my goal is to leave some things unspoken so they'll have to dive into the article to get this. But, but you're right. And that's the go-to for people that want to push back on this. Now, I have a lot on my side also. For example, the Federal Rules of Evidence Rule 102 says the purpose of the rules is to ascertain the truth, but then they say, and secure a just determination. So they're kind of hedging this idea. And I think there's something to say here. And so where I come down in the article is that the primary purpose or a primary purpose of the evidence rules is to give the fact finder information that helps them to figure out what actually happened, right? And I think that that should be uncontroversial. And also... I think even when you say, because I think there is a strong argument, for example, to say the role of the jury should be not just to convict people who are guilty, but maybe the jury should also have a role in saying this person is guilty under the law, but we're going to acquit for moral reasons or, you know, reasons outside of the legal framework. I think there's a good argument that that's part of the jury's role. But I think even if you accept that, I don't think that means we should not give the jury the information to help them understand what's happening. Like, I think we would still say we want the jury to have an accurate picture of factually what happened. And then they could say, even though we think the person's guilty, we're going to acquit. I don't think the idea is we want the jury to make a just decision. Therefore, we're not going to let them know what actually happened. I think all of the acceptable theories about what we want juries to do depend on the jury actually knowing what happened. And so that's really the proposition that I'm pushing here is we want the jury to make factually accurate decisions or at least have the factually accurate information. And especially, like I said, to the extent we're talking about jury convictions, it's very hard to argue that we should deny the jury factually accurate information so that they will convict people who are actually innocent, right? I think that's probably impossible to defend. And so at the end of the day, I think not a problem for the project, but you know, like we're talking about, I think there's a lot of interesting things to say here uh, in terms of other goals of the evidence project and other things we want the jury to do. But as long as you agree with me that a primary goal of like having a legal proceeding is to figure out, did the defendant actually do the thing they're accused of, then we're on the same page. So I want to follow up real quick on your suggestion that the discovery of hundreds of false convictions has provided effectively a means to audit the evidence rules for accuracy. So what's your general methodology for taking that data and taking those false convictions and auditing our evidence code? So the nice thing for this project, there's a lot of research on wrongful convictions and false convictions. Obviously, Brandon Garrett is one of the most prominent scholars in this area, and he took data from the Innocence Project, looked at cases, went through the transcripts, and pulled out, this is what's happening in these cases. And so the project for the scholars looking at that data was what went wrong in these cases, like why were innocent people convicted, 
And there's also the registry in at Michigan that's broader than Brandon Garrett's DNA analysis, which is the same thing. What goes wrong in those cases? Those are cases where not just DNA exonerations, but other methods of exoneration and trying to say what went wrong. And so I'm piggybacking on that work. I don't do any new analysis of the wrongful conviction data. What's nice, and the reason that I felt comfortable not redoing it, was that all of the sources who were looking at the wrongful conviction data were coming to the same basic conclusions about what the causes of wrongful conviction were. And you have to be careful because people use causes in a loose way here. So I'm just kind of uh, mirroring the way people talk about it. So really what we're talking about are kind of correlates or like, what did we see along the road to a wrongful conviction? And because everyone who looked at that data was saying basically the same handful of factors were leading to wrongful convictions, including most prominently mistaken eyewitness identifications, So that's the methodology. So looking at if this is the evidence that's being used to convict innocent people, then I can look at the evidence rules and say, how does that get before the jury? And is there something? Now, one answer could have been the evidence that's being used to convict the innocents, there doesn't really go through any evidence rules. It could just be testimony of people false, like false testimony or something about saying that this person did it and sitting in court fabricating a whole scenario. And we said, there's nothing the evidence rules can do about that. We have to let people testify and and that would happen. But what I found was each of the, what I call the evidentiary correlates of wrongful conviction, like pieces of evidence that go before the jury that are pointing to the wrong answer would go through an evidence rule. And two really interesting things about that. One was the evidence rule was actually supposed to check for reliability, but wasn't. And then two, they were evidence rules that, except for one exception, the uh, rule for expert testimony, they were evidence rules that are so part of the background of our evidence doctrine now that we don't really see them. And that's why I think there's something novel about uh, my approach here was that we weren't really seeing the problem of wrongful convictions or false convictions through an evidence lens because the rules that are involved are like in the background of the evidence doctrine. They're not rules that are controversial anymore. They're rules that are kind of automatic. And so we don't spend a lot of time in in law school. And that to me was really interesting. Like there are evidence levers that are working in these wrongful conviction cases. They're really important levers and they're like invisible. So I want to follow up on those evidence rules that you just identified that might be behind the scenes in our perception, but really working towards false convictions. And the first set of rules is kind of adjacent to eyewitness identifications. Uh, So first, what did the exoneration data show about the effect of eyewitness identifications at trial? So the eyewitness identification, the number is that 72% of these DNA exonerations involve wrong eyewitness identifications. To me, what's interesting about that from an evidence perspective, right, obviously there's criminal procedure implications that people have talked about and police should do lineups in different ways to make sure that is decreased and you could have instructions for the jury and experts who come in and talk about the problems with eyewitness identifications. But then what I talk about in this piece is there's also an evidence rule that's in play here, and that's the hearsay exception for out-of-court identifications. And so when someone testifies at court that they previously picked the defendant out of a lineup or a police officer talks about the victim picking someone out of a lineup, that's hearsay, right? It's an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter asserted that the person is actually the perpetrator. 
so to me, that's really interesting. If false identifications or mistaken identifications are coming into evidence, then that means that we're letting in unreliable hearsay through an exception. And the whole point of the hearsay rules is reliability. And we should care about that. Most of the hearsay exceptions, uh, as a, apart from maybe one or two, uh, try to ensure reliability. And it's always been very interesting to me that the exception for out-of-court eyewitness identifications does not bother requiring any kind of reliability component. And so that's one of the things I say. So that's a finding that the wrongful conviction data tells us we should look at the eyewitness identification rule and think about things like maybe including a provision that says out-of-court identifications that are reliable are admissible, right? And then leave to the judges. And some states have done that, I think, Connecticut. And the other interesting piece of this, and this came up over and over, is that there has been controversy about this rule. So today, there's no controversy about the hearsay exception for prior identifications. I talk about this in the article, basically consensus that it's a fine rule and should be left alone. And what's so interesting is when the federal rules of evidence were sent over to Congress, this rule specifically was excluded. It was that Congress rejected it. And what's kind of even more interesting is it was rejected by one of the famous senators of the day, Sam Irvin, who was famous for his participation in the Watergate hearings. And what's so cool about it is we don't know too much about why he didn't like it. But what we know for sure is that he didn't like this exception so much, and he's a powerful senator, that he said, if you leave this exception in the federal rules of evidence, the entire federal rules of evidence are going to die. Like, I'm going to block all the federal rules of evidence. So imagine the world we would live in if, if they had tried to push this. And so because this powerful senator said, no way I'm going to let this exception in, they took it out. And the rules of evidence passed. And so the Federal Rules of Evidence, kind of trivia, when it was first passed, did not have a hearsay exception for prior statements of identification. And there's kind of this cursory statement of why, which is a worry that people will be convicted based just on out-of-court identification, which suggests to me a sense that there's a reliability problem here. And then, like, you know, as everyone knows, it's there. So how did it get there? Sam Irvin retired like the next year, probably thinking he'd solved this problem. And shortly after he retired, the Senate, whoever wanted the rule, said, aha, he's gone now. And there's a neat little report that disingenuously says, upon reflection, we've decided to think about this rule again. And now we think it's a great rule. And really what has changed is that Sam Irvin has retired. But then they passed it. And so it was like three months after the rules of evidence were enacted, they put that back in, the hearsay exception for prior identifications. And so it's so interesting to me that, one, this exception is letting in flawed evidence without any kind of reliability analysis. And two, it didn't have to be that way. It was actually almost excluded from the rules, and it only got in in this kind of sneaky way. You next note that confessions to law enforcement also are contributing to false convictions. So how do our evidence rules currently enable that or, or maybe even fail to prevent that? Yeah, so again, and this is where it's easy to miss, but if a police officer comes into court and testifies that the defendant said he did it, that's an out-of-court statement, and it's being introduced to prove the truth of the matter asserted out of court, and so it's hearsay. So we have this hearsay evidence, and the evidence being introduced, right, as, uh, like in these cases, is false, right? The police are telling the jury the defendant confessed, and he, you know, maybe he confessed, maybe he didn't confess, but the confession is false, right? So it's unreliable out-of-court statement. It's coming in through a hearsay exception, and it's unreliable. So again, we have this disconnect between the hearsay rules that are supposed to only let in out-of-court statements that are reliable and a really powerful out-of-court statement that's turning out to be 
problematic in these really serious cases coming in through this hearsay exception without any effort to check for reliability. And then again, and this is like a broken record, but it's what makes the article work, is the history of this is fascinating in that it used to be, now this is long, long ago, like in 1800s and things, that there was a robust evidence doctrine, like common law evidence doctrine, that was a screen of the reliability of confessions. And what's so interesting is if you look at the old treatises, like Wigmore's treatise on evidence, there's sections and sections on the hearsay rule for out-of-court confessions. And how are we going to make sure that these out-of-court confessions are reliable? Because there's all sorts of problems. This is like, you know, in 1700, 1600, they recognize there's all sorts of problems with letting in these confessions in terms of reliability and not process, right? Like what we've got up the wazoo now is process, right? We've got constitutional process. You got to get your Miranda rights and all this. And that's, Wigmore makes this point clear because it was becoming confused even hundreds of years ago. He says, this is not about the right of self-incrimination. There's a separate rule and it's an evidence rule. And the evidence rule cares about reliability because this is hearsay. And the evidence rule says we cannot allow in out-of-court statements that are unreliable and these confessions are often unreliable. And so we can't let them in unless they're reliable. And what's interesting is Wigmore hated the rule, but what he was doing was just talking about what the courts were doing. And what the courts were doing If you read it today, it just sounds like revolutionary, but they would say, you put any pressure on a defendant and the defendant confesses, it's not reliable. And you could see the kind of wisdom of the ages. And so there's this classic case I have to tell you about because I think it's so cool in illustrating this point. And a guy has a forged check and he presents the forged check to a merchant or something. And the merchant's like, hey, you know, maybe knows him. I I don't remember exactly how it's clear that it's not name or something. And so he says, hey, like, you've got this check that's not correct. And if you don't tell me what's going on, I'm going to tell the police. And so the guy confesses. They say, oh, well, you know, it's a fake check. And the court said, that's no good. We can't let that into evidence because it's not reliable. Why? Because there was a little bit of pressure on the guy to explain what he did, right? And so you look today, there's, we have nothing like that in the evidence rules anymore. Now the evidence rule is if the other party said it, it comes into evidence. That's the party opponent exception to the hearsay prohibition. And so we're not screening at all. And we used to screen a ton, right? It used to be really hard to get confessions in because they might be unreliable. And now we know that a lot of these confessions are unreliable, but our hearsay rule just lets them in if the other party said it. And so I think that, again, is really interesting and a place for evidence scholars to revisit and look, gee, did we lose something important when we got rid of the hearsay rule for confessions. And what's interesting is that the precursors to the federal rules of evidence, like the model code of evidence and the uniform rules of evidence, actually had hearsay rules for confessions. And it's only the federal rules of evidence that finally says, eh, we don't need that. If the other party said it, it comes in. We're just going to treat all opposing party statements the same, whether it be the criminal defendant, civil defendant, doesn't matter. And there's no more reliability check. And, you know, something's lost. And we're seeing that in the false conviction data. Well, this is all fascinating, Jeff edge of your seat type stuff, I can assure you. And actually, I'm so excited. I'm curious as to whether there's other types of evidence that you focus on. You know, we've talked about eyewitness identifications. We've talked about confessions to police. Anything else we should be worried about when we're thinking about false convictions? Yeah. So the other two, what I call evidentiary correlates of wrongful convictions that the other scholars like Brandon Garrett have found are 
false forensic testimony or like misleading forensic testimony. And that one I don't talk about in the article because people already recognize that as an evidence issue. And it's actually addressed in the evidence rules that require reliability for expert testimony. And so I have nothing new to say about that. That's been covered. And I think that's good that the evidence community has seen that. The other ones we need to kind of pay more attention to. And then that brings us to the last one. The, the other evidentiary correlate of false convictions are informant, testimony, like these jailhouse snitch testimony. And this comes in, it's a less of the cases, but in a lot of the very important cases, like murder cases, a jailhouse informant is testifying that the defendant confessed in jail or in prison. And that statement is coming in. And again, it comes in as the statement of a party opponent. And now here, the reliability problem is not that the police coerced the person to confess but that the jailhouse informant is just making it up, right? And so in that sense, it's a different problem. Although I point this out in the article, some of the the old case law, again, distrusted this kind of testimony using some of the same reasoning. They say, well, we don't know why someone would have confessed in jail, but probably there was some pressure there, so we can't trust it, so we're not going to let it in. Again, it's just a reliability concern. But I think it's a different concern and, and needs to be talked about differently. And here I switch to the modern lens And I think the problem that we have here is the assumption in the rules of evidence that if we can let in party opponent statements, even if they're not reliable, because the party can dispute them, the party is there. And if there's someone saying that you confessed and you didn't confess, just get on the witness stand and tell the jury. And then they'll decide if you should be believed or not. There's a lot of reasons to think the jailhouse informant is making it up, and the jury will probably side with you. And that's where I tap into some of my other research about defendant testimony and and prior convictions. And it's just not the case for a criminal defendant that it's so easy to say, just get on the stand and testify. Because the way our rules are set up is that if you don't testify, you get all sorts of advantages, such as your prior record doesn't come into evidence. And if you do testify, you get all sorts of disadvantages, primarily that now the jury does typically hear about your prior record of convictions. And that's really bad for the defendant, for the jury to hear that this isn't their first run in with the law. They've had these other problems. And so find these, and I have this in the article, these facile uh, suggestions that, oh, it's okay to let in the party opponent statements, even if they're unreliable, because the party can just take the stand and deny it. That's all well and good in a civil case. But it just doesn't work as an explanation in a criminal case where it's not easy for the criminal defendant to get on the stand. And now, and this ties into my later discussion that I hope we'll get to, that the jury is going to see this picture in a really misleading way. They're going to hear from the informant that the defendant confessed in jail, and they will expect the defendant, if that's not true, to get up and say no. So the jury's going to sit there and say, well, maybe this guy is telling the truth because I didn't even hear from the defendant. And the jury has no idea that there's all these tactical and evidentiary problems for the defendant if they take the witness stand. So that's a problem too. So I will confess that I'm somewhat surprised that a few evidence rules haven't come up when we're talking about false convictions. Thinking intuitively about this project without the empirical data, I would have thought, okay, what evidence rules are contributing to false convictions? Well, it's going to be rule 404B that allows in evidence of defendant's prior acts purportedly for a non-propensity purpose or maybe even Rule 609, which allows in past convictions for a purported impeachment purpose, yet you find that those aren't playing a big role in false convictions. So if you would build that finding out for us. Sure. And so the 404 is is a great example, right? And I, I talk about this in the piece. There's kind of two interesting things here. One is 
look at these rules that are playing a role in the conviction of the innocent that we don't really talk about or don't even see. And, you know, were once hugely controversial. And then the second piece is, it's interesting, like you said, that the rules of evidence that we do fight and talk about the most, like rule 404B, I think everybody agrees, is like the most litigated rule of evidence. And, you know, you could litigate things even if they are accurate or inaccurate, but that's like the rule that we're fighting about the most and probably we think about as most damaging to criminal defendants. And we're not seeing that. So the people that studied wrongful convictions are not saying, oh, well, the problem in this case was, uh, you know, a bunch of Rule 404B evidence. And that's interesting to me, too, and kind of supports where I go with this, which is, you know, not that we need to change any one rule, but we need to shift our attention from what I used to call in the piece the marquee evidence rules to these rules that don't get a lot of attention but actually might be the most problematic rules of all, these kind of secret or under-the-radar rules that are letting in the, the evidence that actually convicts the innocents as a, innocent as opposed to rules that get a lot of attention, look really bad, but maybe don't cause these problems. And I say, like, there's two possibilities. They don't cause the problems because problem being conviction of the innocent. Maybe they don't cause the problem because the jury discounts it because it's obviously problematic to say the defendant's guilty of this crime because they did a different crime. Or maybe that 404B evidence actually correlates well with guilt. But for whatever reason, those rules aren't showing up. And that's interesting uh, as well. Now, I have to correct the record on 609. Uh, Now, and I should say, too, this isn't just defensive because I've written about 609. I've written about one of the other rules I talk about that we're always talking about, like presence and suppressions, excited utterances, like the exciting hearsay exceptions. Those don't show up either. So I'm guilty of focusing on what I'm saying are the wrong rules as well. But 609, I think, because of that last point, which expands both to the defendant confessions and the jailhouse informant statements of what the defendant said, I think 609 is playing a role here in making it harder for the defendant to challenge the reliability of opposing party statements, because 609 is typically what keeps defendants off the stand. And I have this the crazy stat that comes from John Bloom at Cornell, which is that even for innocent defendants, like 40% of innocent defendants did not testify at their trial. And so you have to think about like that as just a giant tragedy of the evidence rules, right? That we have a defendant sitting there in front of a jury and their lawyers must be telling them don't testify. And they could get on the stand and say, I'm innocent. They don't do that and they're convicted. And that's a huge tragedy. And and so that contributes to why the jury might be lending credibility to the confessions they're hearing about and the jailhouse informant testimony and suggests that maybe 609 actually does play a role because that's what's keeping the defendants off the stand. And you note that the kind of the final implication of your article is that the evidence most likely to generate a false conviction seems to fit a rough pattern. So what's that pattern? Yeah, what's interesting is it's not just something that's unreliable. And that's how I think I would describe the evidence rule project generally. I talk about this as like lightly screening all evidence for reliability. And what I suggest is maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe that's just distracting. And what we really should be doing is focusing on areas where some evidence is going to be unreliable, but the jury is likely to not see that. And so, and that's the pattern I'm talking about. So here again, revisiting the forensic expert testimony, right? So that's like an expert in bite marks who gets on the stand and says, this has to be the bite mark of the defendant. Turns out that's bogus science, but the jury might have trouble figuring that out, right? Same with now 
we talk about the defendant's confessions, right? So the police officer gets on the stand and matter-of-factly says, yep, and the defendant confessed. Or the jailhouse informant comes up and says, defendant told me uh, that he did this. Now, actually, that one, I don't know, maybe the jury could see. But the first one, certainly, the jury is going to have trouble discounting the police officer's testimony, especially, and this is where I think it does become important, when they're often not going to hear from the defendant themselves. And so they're going to say, huh, we heard from the police that he confessed, and we never heard from him that he didn't confess or explaining why he might have been perceived to confess. And so I think they're going to have trouble distinguishing reliable from unreliable confessions in that context. And then the same with the out-of-court identifications. Gee, the witness who has no bias against the defendant is identifying them. Turns out it's unreliable, but the jury may have trouble seeing that. And this is where I circle back to, these are all hearsay, except for the expert one. These are all out-of-court statements coming in for the truth of the matter asserted, they're coming in as exceptions to the hearsay rules. The general idea there is we worry about the jury's ability to assess out-of-court, the reliability of -of out-of-court statements. And typically, we screen those statements for reliability to make up for the fact that there isn't the kind of in-court assessment tools we usually use. But these three, right, that jailhouse informant, the police officer confession testimony, and the eyewitness identification, we don't screen that those out-of-court statements for reliability at all. And so it starts to look like the evidence rules are missing something here. It's kind of like a predictable problem. And that's what's so interesting when you look at the history and see, yeah, we used to actually worry about this and we just stopped worrying about it. And we shouldn't be that surprised now that we've got some data that stopping worrying about it doesn't solve the problem. Well, Jeff, it has been fascinating to hear about your article. Thank you for coming back to the show. I hope you'll be thinking about a third visit. (laughs) Does it require writing more articles or do you just get to come on and chat one of these times? We'll see. We'll see. Maybe maybe (laughs) we'll we'll change it up again. Something else we need to focus group. (laughs) Very good. All right. Great talking with you, Alex. In the time since I've recorded my interview with Jeff, I've had the opportunity to take a step back and really consider why it is I feel that Jeff's paper exemplifies the leading edge of evidence scholarship. And I think the first move on this front is a descriptive one. Through his article's examination of the false conviction data, for example, he's offering a powerful explanatory account of some of the leading factors that contribute to false convictions. But of course, Jeff's paper doesn't stop there, right? He moves beyond the descriptive to the normative. And through his calls for reform, he's offering a strong normative perspective on the beneficial change that can occur when we adopt this institutional willingness to adjust our evidentiary regime. But even from there, I think his paper still has more to offer. Even beyond its fascinating descriptive account, its explanatory model, even beyond its persuasive normative suggestions for reform, Jeff's paper offers a challenge to all of us evidence scholars. With his counterintuitive findings, he challenges us to leave no stone unturned in our own work. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. 
And I do hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof.